As I filled in for Pat most recently, I've been working our way through the book of Exodus. And uh, I am just struck by the power of God and the sovereignty of God in Exodus the more I study. And today is no exception. Exodus 15 in your Bibles is where we will start today. Let me remind you of the setting as we come to Exodus chapter 15. The Lord has delivered His people from death, first on the night of Passover, and then by parting the Red Sea, and bringing His people safely through the waters to the other side. And at the same time, God dramatically poured out His wrath and judgment on Pharaoh in Egypt and their false gods by drowning Pharaoh's army in the same waters that brought deliverance for the people of Israel. It was a powerful demonstration of God's grace to His people. An awesome display of His power, of His protection and His provision for the people of Israel. The people responded as we might expect and began their joyful song in worship of the Lord God in Exodus 15 verse 2 with these words, The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. And they finished the song of Moses in verse 18 by proclaiming, The Lord will reign forever and ever. Truly a mountaintop experience. Does it get any better than this? Well, as a matter of fact, God had promised the people of Israel that it would get better than this. He promised Abraham in the book of Genesis that he would build this people of God, this little family of Jacob and his 70 other members of this family into a great nation. And he did that while they were in slavery in Egypt. As they left Egypt, well over a million of them, a nation of them, like the sand of the seashore, are pouring through the Red Sea into the Sinai Desert. This promise that God made to Abraham also included the promise of land. To give them a land, a land flowing with milk and honey. A promised land of blessing on God's people from which the blessings of God would flow to all the families of the earth. The Israelites were now on that journey to this promised land. They were headed that direction. And it is here that we pick up the story this morning. I have a three-point outline for you today. Point number one, their water problem reveals their heart. Chapter 15, verses 22 to 27. Point number two, their food problem is answered with bread from heaven. Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 36. Point number three, Their heart problem is answered with living water. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. So let's go down to verse 22, and let's read Exodus 15, verse 22. Point number one, their water problem reveals their heart. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, 
They could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? They are three days after leaving the Red Sea and a little over a week from leaving their homes in Egypt. No doubt they filled their water skins before they left. But there's over a million of them. And they've been in the desert, in the wilderness. And they're getting thirsty. And they truly are thirsty. Dehydration is a real threat. And if they don't find water soon, first the elderly will go. Then the very young and the sick. And then they'll all suffer. So this is a real need. They really are thirsty. And then they find water. They come upon this oasis in the middle of the desert. You can imagine their excitement as they saw it, as the thirst, they were rushing towards it. And they get there and they find it's bitter water. It's poisonous water. It's water not fit for human consumption. It would make them sick. They can't drink it. Well, what is their response? Their response is grumbling. The Hebrew word used here means to express resentment, dissatisfaction, anger, or complaint in half-muted tones of hostile opposition. Hostile opposition. Similar words of ingratitude were heard just a chapter earlier. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 14 and verse 10. This is not a new thing. Exodus 14, verse 10. The people of Israel are trapped up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them. Let's read the text. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They panicked. They see Pharaoh's army. Their back's up against the sea. They have nowhere to go. Well, the Lord responded to their unbelief by graciously delivering his people God's response, verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord is going to deliver them. He does deliver them. But we do see a pattern of behavior with Israel. They are grumblers and complainers. They are whiners. 
They panicked when Pharaoh's army was approaching. They had just seen an awesome display of his power to deliver them, yet here they are, just three days removed from this event, and they are thirsty and complaining at Merah. It is apparent, and will become more so, that they are unwilling to trust the Lord in the midst of bad circumstances. It seems their thirst has become so great that they've already forgotten who this God is that delivered them out of Egypt. His protection and His provision for them, which He so richly demonstrated, is discounted, as we will see, as each new trial arrives in their journey to the promised land. It is a pattern of sin for them. Verse 25 of Exodus 15. Follow along with me as I read. And he cried to the Lord. Moses cried to the Lord. I'm always encouraged by Moses. When things don't go well, he turns to the Lord. He cries out to him. He cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log or a tree. And he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. First, the Lord provides grace. Tells Moses to throw a log in the water, throw a tree in the water, And it miraculously transforms the water from bitter water, from undrinkable water, from poisonous water, to sweet, refreshing, and nourishing water. And then the Lord adds, starting in verse 16, or I'm sorry, in verse 26, that if you will listen to His voice, if you will listen to the Lord, He will care for you. He will protect you and provide for you. Whereas Israel's pattern is already seen as one of grumbling and complaining, God's pattern is one of grace, provision, and deliverance. And once again, He provides for them here. You see, the bitterness of the water that is found here is reflected in the bitterness of God's people. And their grumbling and bitterness is met by sweet and gracious provision from God. When confronted with doubt and rebellion... We see that God responds with grace and provision for the needs of His people. Verse 27, Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. God graciously now brings them next to a valley, to an oasis of trees and water. There's a spring for each of the tribes of Israel. It's a beautiful place of refreshment. And they rest there for several days. That brings us to point number two. Their food problem is met with bread from heaven. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 36. Chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Here we go again. They're a little over a month now out of Egypt. 
and they're grumbling and complaining again. What's their complaint this time? What are they dissatisfied with this time? Verse 3, And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They are now hungry. And it is likely a legitimate hunger. It's a difficult existence. Day to day, tromping through the wilderness on a journey through the desert. But notice... The whole group is now grumbling. They claim death in Egypt would have been better than this. You see, they have glorified the memories of Egypt. They've got rose-colored glasses on as they look back, thinking that they had the most wonderful diet and they got their tummies full every night. In reality, it was a ruthless slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh was a ruthless ruler. It was not the pleasant circumstance that they want the people want to make it out to be. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Moses tells the people, when you grumble against me, you're not really grumbling against me. You're grumbling against the sovereign God who puts you here. The sovereign God who controls your circumstances. Verse 9, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. God is persistent, isn't he? He not only answers their grumbling by appearing before them in a pillar of cloud and fire, reinforcing the fact that his very presence is with them. But he says, I'm going to fill your stomachs. I'm going to fill your stomachs with meat every evening and bread every morning. He's going to provide them not just barely enough to get by, but enough so that they are filled. His provision will be a full and complete provision for them. For their physical needs, He is making provision to meet their need, to answer their grumbling and complaining, as sinful as it might be. 
And the purpose? That you shall know that I am the Lord your God. He wants to leave no doubt in their mind who he is. Verse 13. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? That's the translation of the word for manna. What is it? See, both the quail falling and the manna on the ground were a miraculous provision of God for His people. This is not a natural occurrence. There is no natural occurrence that will provide this kind of food on the ground and meat for them to eat in the Middle East. Nothing like this. It is a miraculous provision of the sovereign, almighty God. And it's something they've never quite seen before. That's why they call it, what is it? They don't know. But they know it's good for them. They know it's food. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer. That's about two liters. According to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. What a surprise. Why do you suppose some of them didn't listen to Moses? That first morning when they went out to gather bread, keep in mind they'd been pretty hungry. What happens on the second morning? Or rather, what happens on the first evening? Some of them are probably pretty concerned that maybe this bread isn't going to show up tomorrow. I better hang on to a little bit of this stuff just in case the Lord doesn't come through. See, they're doubting it. That's why some don't go out. Well, verse 20. What happens to this extra manna that they hang on to? They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread. Two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. God miraculously provided for them to have a day of rest, a Sabbath day where they did not have to go to work. They did not have to gather bread in the morning and quail in the evening. He provided for them again. 
verse 25. And Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. They still didn't trust him, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? You get the sense the Lord is getting a little frustrated with this. Repeated disobedience and not believing what he says. Verse 29. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Well, how has the Lord responded to those who have shown unbelief? He's graciously met their need for food to satisfy their physical hunger to the full. It is a complete provision. Bread and meat to satisfy their hunger, to provide nourishment and sustenance in the midst of a desert wilderness. Life-giving food in a daily and seemingly never-ending supply of it. You see, when confronted with doubt and rebellion, the Lord once again responded with grace and provision for the need of His people. That brings us to point number three. Their heart problem is answered with living water. Verses 1 to 7. Exodus 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Zin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Uh Uh-oh. No water again? Verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa, and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Verse 2. We have a replay 
of what just happened at Merah. Back in chapter 15. No water again. Can you imagine what the people are thinking about Moses? Moses, are you so incompetent that you've brought this multitude of people to another place with no water? Or maybe you just don't know what you're doing, Moses. Or maybe you're attempting to kill us, Moses. It's so bad. Their opposition is so great. Moses is afraid they're going to stone him. Stoning is the death penalty. Stoning is the the legal death penalty in the justice system in the Old Testament. They're going to put him to death. Verse 2, it says, therefore the people quarreled. Notice this time, the word isn't grumbling, it's quarreled. It's a different word in the Hebrew. It's the word we would transliterate into English as rib. Matter of fact, you see it in the middle of Meribah. Meribah, rib. Meribah means quarreling. Well, that word means to have strife or contention. It's often used of litigation and in legal matters. It's often used of a courtroom situation, a courtroom setting. It is used by the prophets of God to describe God's case against His adulterous people Israel throughout the Old Testament. They are quarreling with Moses. They are bringing him to trial. They are testing him or contending with him as if in a court of law. The implication is clear. That's that's why the penalty that Moses fears is stoning. Because that would be the ultimate result of him being found guilty. And notice before, in this passage, the people are testing God. Not God testing the people. Here we're told unabashedly and without shame that arrogantly and pridefully the people are testing the Lord. Verse 3, they claim the Lord brought them out of Egypt to kill them, not redeem them, not rescue them, not save them, but to cruelly kill them. In other words, God's going to do something that's totally against His promise? To lead them to a promised land? I love Moses' immediate reaction to their grumbling again. He cries to the Lord. He prays to God. He pleads with the Lord for help. Moses is on trial, no doubt, perhaps for his life. But it is really God who is the defendant here. It is God who is on trial before His people. Verse 5 brings a great and strong response from God. He gives Moses instruction. He brings the nation of Israel in the form of the elders to Israel to the courtroom as judge. Gather them up, Moses. Bring them on in. God tells Moses to bring the staff with which he held before Pharaoh 
and used to turn the water of the Nile River in Egypt into blood in judgment upon Pharaoh with him. He tells Moses specifically, bring that staff. Verse 6, an incredible statement. God says, Behold, I will stand before you. Throughout the Bible, throughout the Scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, God does not stand before men. Men stand before God in judgment. But in this case, God says, Behold, I will stand before you. And God is standing there on the rock. God is voluntarily placing himself in the place of the one being judged here, in the courtroom, in the defendant's stand, in the defendant's position. He rightfully should have been judging Israel for their unbelief, right? For their disobedience, for their grumbling, for their complaining against Him. And not just once, but repeatedly they've demonstrated this. But yet here, God says, I will stand before you. I will stand on the rock. By standing on the rock, God is symbolically identifying with it. God is called the rock in many places in the Scripture. We just sang songs about rock of ages, cleft for me. Those come out of the Scripture. Psalm 18, verse 1, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Psalm 19, verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to You, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 62, verse 2, He alone is my rock and my salvation. Are you getting the picture? God is symbolically identifying Himself with the rock He is standing on. Now Moses is commanded to do something He is commanded to strike the rock with his staff. With the rod of judgment, Moses is told to strike the rock. The Israelites should have been struck here. They should have been judged. But instead, God, who is not guilty, bears the strike. He bears the punishment. God takes the strike of the rod. God takes the penalty that His people rightly deserved. The seriousness of this moment is, of this blow by Moses in obedience is seen in another similar incident in Numbers chapter 20. In Numbers 20, Moses is told by God to speak to the rock. But in disobedience and in anger, Moses strikes the rock. And in so doing, he dishonors God. The consequence of that is God prohibits Moses from entering the promised land. But notice that this time, the staff of Moses doesn't bring forth blood as before when he stood at the Nile River in Egypt. It doesn't bring forth blood, which is a symbol of death. 
but rather the rock brings forth water as a symbol of life, a life-giving stream to refresh, nourish, and even save the people of God from death in the sun-drenched and parched desert. Who is this rock that is struck and brings forth life-giving water? It is Christ. It is the pre-incarnate Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. A church that has much sin in it, much disobedience, much like the people of Israel. Let's let Scripture interpret Scripture for us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Let's see what Paul has to tell us about these events under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses, were immersed or identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul is talking about our incident here. He's talking about the Passover. He's talking about the, the, the parting of the Red Sea. He's talking about the people of Israel here in the pillar of cloud and fire with God leading them through the wilderness. That's who he's talking about. Verse 3, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. This idea of spiritual water, this living water that flows from God, is seen in the Old Testament in Zechariah 13 and 14, in Ezekiel chapters 35 and 47. Jesus refers to it as flowing from the work of the Holy Spirit when speaking to the Jews in John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus spoke of it early and earlier in his earthly ministry. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus, as a Jewish man, isn't even supposed to talk to a Samaritan woman. It's, it's like a, a, a forbidden thing to do. John chapter 4, verse 7. Listen as I read. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I love that question. She is so genuine. She doesn't get it at all. She doesn't know where Jesus is going yet. 
Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Once again, when confronted with the doubt and rebellion of people, Christ responds with grace and provision for our need. But we're not done with 1 Corinthians yet. Paul doesn't leave it here. Back to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5. There's a solemn and serious warning for us as believers. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were killed in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. As examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. This idolatry that manifests itself in three ways according to Paul. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual sexual immorality as some of them did. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did. Verse 11, he says it again. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. See, we who are on this side of the cross have even greater revelation from God. We not only see the great miracles He did with the nation Israel in the Exodus We have the benefit of hearing the prophets proclaim the coming death of the Savior. And we have the testimony of the Word of God of the life, death, and resurrection of the Savior Himself as a payment for penalty for our sin. We have so much more than they had. And Paul is pleading with us to look at them as an example. Learn from them. Why? Because he knows. We can be a prideful people. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Someone came up to me after first service and with a big smile on their face, they said, I would have never grumbled and complained in the wilderness. Really? Would you have grumbled and complained of thirst and hunger in the wilderness? I think I would have. I think you would have too. But 
for the most part, in many ways, we have it pretty easy. And when the struggles come and when the difficulties come, we often look for answers everywhere but to the Lord. Now, there's great comfort here. Let's don't forget. Let's don't stop at verse 12. Let's look at verse 13. Just like for the Israelites, when they grumbled and complained, were rebellious against him, when they put him on trial, God provided grace, didn't he? He provided provision. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is Faithful. Don't miss that. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God will provide the grace. The temptation may be tough. Matter of fact, he doesn't promise that it will be over quickly, does it? He says that you will be able to endure it. But leave no doubt in your mind. He is faithful. He will provide the grace. You see, these examples, they reveal our hearts of idolatry. We have certainly been saved from the power of sin by the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Christ, by the cross, by the gospel. But we still have the presence of sin within us. Our flesh is still there. And it is still tempting us. And we have a world around us of fleshly things and fleshly people that are still tempting us. And we have Satan who wants to use that sin to tempt us and drive us away and pull us away from trusting in God. And God is saying, trust me. Trust me. I provide the grace. I provide the provision. Turn back with me to Exodus 17. Exodus 17. I want to look at the last verse one more time. Exodus 17, verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, God makes clear what's really going on here. The question is, is the Lord among us or not? That's what the people are asking by their doubting, by their complaining, by their grumbling, by their testing. The people are asking, is the Lord really here? Is this really the all-powerful, all-sovereign Lord of the universe? They've seen and experienced some great things. The plagues on Egypt, their children and families rescued in Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, their deliverance from Egypt, Pharaoh's army drowned in a sea of judgment. 
But yet, when the daily circumstances and trials of their journey in their life bear down on them, they are asking, is God really here after all? You see, the doubting continues. Is he really able to take care of us? Is he really a loving God? Will he really let disaster overcome us? You see, the complaining, the grumbling, ultimately the quarreling and the contending about the circumstances to Moses was complaining, grumbling, testing the Lord. Let's not miss the words of 1 Corinthians 10. So too is our complaining and grumbling about our circumstances. Complaining and grumbling about the people of our lives, the trials of our lives, about work, about my family troubles, about my kids, about my bank account. It is testing God. It is idolatry invading our hearts. It is doubting Him. The truth of these events are as real today as it was over 3,500 years ago. God's people are prone to grumbling in the face of adversity. No matter how spectacular may be the evidence of His power and presence or God's track record of delivered promises, we're a grumbling people. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord here? How could this be? How could they faithfully doubt, faithlessly doubt and disobey? The answer lies in the fact that many of them clearly think God exists to serve them. Not that they are to serve God. After all, God has served them, hasn't He? Hasn't He got them out of Egypt and out of slavery? Yes, He did. Didn't He provide them with food to eat when they were hungry and water to drink when they were thirsty? Yes, He did. Somehow they think that gives them the right to when God doesn't meet every need the way they think He should to grumble and complain or to not wait on Him, to not trust His timing. I'm guilty of it. I'm sure you are too. I'm glad I could share my convictions that I've been dealing with all week while I study this passage with you this morning. It's a humbling thing. You see, we forget the grace and provision that is ours in Christ. You see, our God provided for His people Israel a beautiful picture and portrait of how He meets their real needs even in the desert. He points them to Himself for deliverance and provision in their time of need. He heard their cry and He answered. He mercifully took the punishment they deserved and graciously met their need. And in so doing, God pointed forward to a greater and more potent food and drink. Christ, the Son of God, was there in the wilderness providing for them, just as He provides for us. He provides for believers in Christ this side of the cross. It is a picture and a portrait that is even more rich and beautiful in light of His sacrifice on our behalf. The manna, the daily bread that showed up on the ground every morning to provide for the physical needs of the people, it was pointing to the spiritual bread, the true and living bread of John chapter 6, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like the people of God with Moses in the wilderness who were testing the Lord, so the Israelites of Jesus' day were testing Him. 
Listen carefully to the response of our Lord as he points them to himself in this Old Testament passage from John chapter 6, verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written. He has given them bread from heaven to eat. Well, let's see. Earlier in John chapter 6, Jesus had fed the 5,000. Just a little before this, Jesus had walked on the water. He had healed many. You see, they didn't need more signs. They had plenty of signs. All them asking for a sign was is a sign of their unbelief, of their doubting of God. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, nothing has changed between the time of Moses and the time of Christ. They're demanding signs. They want proof. They doubt Him. They don't believe Him. The water that poured from the rock to provide for the physical needs of the people of Jesus is pointing to the spiritual drink. To the living water of John chapters 4 and 7. The living water that is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is truly our rock of salvation that brings living water, that brings spiritual birth, that takes people like us, like you and like me, who are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins and without hope, and regenerates us from the inside, giving us new life in Christ. Jesus satisfies our thirst. Jesus provides our spiritual drink. Again, the words of Christ. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Our need for deliverance from our biggest problem, from our own sin, from our unbelief, from our idolatry, from our grumbling, our complaining, our quarreling with God, from putting Him to the test, from putting Him on trial in the little courtroom of our hearts, from thinking He exists to serve us, rests with God's only provision for us, God's only salvation from our sin. That gracious provision, the one who meets our need, is the one who is true bread and living water. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray this morning that we would heed the examples you have given us. That we would not doubt you in the midst of trying circumstances, but that we would trust you. Yes, Father, that we can pour our hearts out to you in anguish and pain and acknowledge before you how much we hurt, Father, or how sad we are, or how disappointed we are. But 
the joy still lives within us, Father, of the trust that we have in You. For You are the steadfast and faithful God. You are the God that provides spiritual nourishment through the true bread of Christ. You are the God that provides for our thirst, that satisfies us eternally, provides grace for eternal life, so that we might have relationship with You, not just now and in this life, but in the life to come. We take comfort in that, Father. Help us not be prideful people. Help us to be humble before You and before one another. Help us to desire to serve one another that flows out of a heart that desires to serve You. Help us to see one another as You see us. Help us to see our need. Our need is for Christ. Help us to encourage, exhort, and yes, even admonish one another, Father. When we follow the example of the Israelites and we don't trust and we doubt and we put you to the test, we confess that sin before you today. And we rejoice in the magnificent salvation that is ours. For neither height nor depth or anything on earth can come between us and Jesus Christ. Through the magnificent salvation that you have provided, Father, we rejoice in the rock of our salvation, in true bread and true drink, living water. Amen.